0: I'm Jill Shaw, and you're listening to Catalyst for Change, brought to you by the Shaw Family Foundation. My guest today is Mayor Michael Tubbs. In 2016, Michael Tubbs became the first Black mayor, and at 26 years old, the youngest mayor to ever serve in Stockton, California. One of his early supporters was Oprah Winfrey, Barack Obama endorsed him, and he has collaborated with Vice President-elect Harris, among other movers and shakers in the Democratic Party. He started the Stockton Economic Empowerment Demonstration, a guaranteed income program that gives 125 residents of Stockton $500 a month. Out of this work, he founded Mayors for a Guaranteed Income, organizing mayors around pilots and advocacy of guaranteed income for the underserved. Mayor Tubbs grew up poor in Stockton, California and was raised by his mother while his father was incarcerated he attended the public schools and ended up at Stanford and then returned to Stockton and ran for city council and won before becoming mayor. In a significant and unforeseen upset, Mayor Tubbs has been recently unseated by Republican candidate Kevin Lincoln. There are many stories to tell here. Let's see how many we can fit into the next hour. Mayor Michael Tubbs, thank you so much for being with us today.
1: Thank you so much for having me.
0: So this is, I, I was just saying this to you offline, but you are kind of a cult figure in our offices, and we have been reading a lot about you as we've been engaged in guaranteed income work in Massachusetts, and you it's very, it's the, the city of Stockton, your history there, your work as mayor there, really your whole life is really interesting, and so I was wondering if we could just start by just talking about what Stockton's like, Stockton, California, and um, what it was like growing up there.
1: Yeah, Stockton, California is home. It is the most diverse city in this country, according to the U.S. News and World Report. Hmm. USA Today, excuse me. We are um, a city of about 315,000 people. The median income for a household is $46,000, not for an individual, meaning the median income for individuals is lower than that. right um real challenges um 48% of all jobs are minimum wage jobs hmm. um fastest rising rent market in the country um interesting most, I,
0: that's because the, so the city has been growing is that why it's,
1: it's partly because we're located between Sacramento and San Francisco okay and a lot of our population about 10% of our population commutes um, three hours or more we have the highest rate of super commuters in the country oh, wow. folks who spend three hours or more in their cars going to to work over the bridge in, in bay area some to be um, engineers but others to do sort of service jobs but in the bay area right um, we are a city with a proud history um, dolores Huerta, maya angelo Larry Leon, all claim stockton as home. Wow. The oldest Sikh temple in North America is in Stockton. So it's really an American city. It's, it's a city that's also politically diverse. My city council when I was mayor was four Republicans and two Democrats. Hmm. Um, so it's a really interesting place of, of opportunity, of real challenges, but filled with amazing, resilient people.
0: What did it feel like when you were growing up there?
1: Um, growing up, it's weird because growing up, it was all I knew. It was home. So I had right. no idea, sort of. The difficulties or what was different because when you grow up you think your world's the world right so i remember right. a lot of love sense of community was very strong church was like the center of everything family uh, my mom was single she had me in high school so my mom my aunt, my grandmother created like this three walls of mothers that provided a lot of love and a lot of structure yeah as i grew up um but you would notice little things like I remember writing my college essays about a newspaper article that said lowest in literacy, highest in crime, and it was about Stockton. It was about how my senior year we had been ranked the most illiterate city in the country. Wow. Um, and then we also had the highest crime rate in the country. Um, and you or you would internalize messages from people like, "Oh, to be successful means you have to leave Stockton." Did it? That, did it that, feel you know, dangerous when you were growing up? It did feel. Dangerous. It's still Even as mayor, um, it did not feel dangerous, particularly yeah. because we know that so much of our gun violence is concentrated in certain groups and certain networks and certain mm-hmm. people involved in a certain lifestyle. Yeah. So if you're not a big drug dealer, if you're not a big gang member, your likelihood of being shot in the city of Stockton is very, very low. You're, you're more mm-hmm. likely to be hit by lightning or hit by a car. Um, but if you are one of the young men who live in neighborhoods of no opportunity and are part of groups engaged in active conflict, or if you've been shot, like then you have a very high risk. Yeah. Um, but fast forwarding, one of the things I'm proud of in my term as mayor is we've actually saw group getting gun violence decreased by a focused intervention on, on that subset. No, but, but growing up, it felt like home, but I was always told that it was cool to be from Stockton, but you don't stay there that to be huh. successful meant you had to leave. So when I graduated from high school and went to Stanford, I had no intention of coming back. I thought that I was successful. I had left. And that was my, in the end of my relationship with the city.
0: Huh. So what brought you back? I was, because I was, my question was going to be, did you grow up wanting to be mayor of Stockton? That no, absolutely like,
1: not. Yeah. If you had told me just 10 years ago, um, maybe not 10 years ago, 11 years ago, that I was going to be mayor, I was going to go back to Stockton. And then I would be mayor of Stockton. I would say, absolutely not. Like, why would I do that? Like, what, <laughs> right. So, so, you, so
0: you're, in Stan, you're at Stanford, and what did you study at Stanford?
1: I did my master's in education policy. And I did my okay. undergraduate degree there in comparative studies in race and ethnicity.
0: Okay, so you you weren't you weren't getting a law degree, you weren't really studying politics, you weren't kind of priming for. Well,
1: I took political science courses, and I was just yeah. bo- I took intro to po- American government, and I dropped it, I think, because it was so much about the institution, yeah, and not about the people. And I was like, oh, I'm really interested in the people, like the political stuff. I, I actually don't care, <laughs> like, it's right. a, or it's a means to an end, like it's important right. to understand the rules but I was going to spend my time studying. So that's why I did a degree in comparative studies of race and ethnicity, because it was multidisciplinary. So I could learn about the histories of different peoples. I could have a critical race lens into what happened. I could take take what I wanted. I was able to pick my classes. Yeah. And it, it created a, 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 an opportunity to, to learn and to get good grades, because I actually liked every single class I took. Yeah,
0: such a cool um, thing.
1: So yeah, so no, it, I mean, I was still active, though. Like my first week in college, I was registering voters on on, on the okay. weekend. Yeah. My first yeah. month I brought 50 students to the city council meeting to demand that the police chief resign for, for racial profiling. Um, so I was always I was NACP president. I was um, lead or one of the lead organizers for our rally against police brutality. I was one of our lead organizers for Occupy Stanford. Like so I was always involved, but it was much more from an advocacy activist pushing perspective, not, I did not see myself as being like the man or being in office or, or, or being the politician. And, but so, that changed after my cousin was unfortunately a victim of a homicide in Stockton while I was interning in the White House. And it was that feeling of nihilism of real survivor's guilt as well, and being really angry with the city huh. and angry at the response and saying, well, we have to do better than this. And, and, if, and at least if nothing else... I can be part of a conversation about how you create safety in the community. And that was in 2012, I was 21 years old. I was still finishing up my um, master's and bachelor's um, and I decided to run for city council.
0: So, but help me understand the emotions of that. So you're working in the White House. You're working in the Obama, Obama White House. What'd you do there by the way?
1: It, it's hilarious. Cause now is there, like everything I said is going like, no, you planned this, but God <laughs> planned it. I didn't plan this. right? My job was the thing I ranked last, no, just above correspondence office, just above the mail. Yeah. I was in charge of outreach to mayors and council members.
0: Yeah. <laughs> Funny. Yeah. I think you're right. I think there's some universal <laughs> energy at
1: play and there I, maybe. The thing is, I hated it. I it was like, I, <laughs> I loved my staff. I loved being in the white house, but that was, I went to do policy stuff. So I remember, I was writing memos and just, but I learned so much about what mayors and council members were doing. I yeah. met all these mayors. And that's when, like, Cory Books and your booker were still mayor, yeah. yeah. Casha yeah. was mayor, Villa Rose. like, all these larger than life mayoral figures were, were still mayors and they were doing things. And I was like, oh my gosh, like, the only reason why I'm calling them is because my boss likes them. because they've been in the news or because they're they've elevated the the city was elevated to a significant focus for me in 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 my office because of the leadership of the mayor and the councilman they were somehow an example wow yeah i was like oh wow so then i saw how big stockton was compared to other cities because growing up i thought stockton was a a small town Uh, but it's (laughs) 315,000 people so it's larger than Pittsburgh it's larger than Cincinnati it's larger than St. Louis I had no idea
0: really I was like yeah I just interesting
1: no idea so then because well because in California it's only the 12th largest city or so it's (laughs) it's not that big I mean we have LA San Diego we have like cities of millions of people right so longer story short I remember thinking, telling my mom that, okay, I'm going to make a lot of money and support people running for office and Stockton, because my whole family was still there. Yeah. So I've seen the importance of leadership and matters. And while having this internal conversation, and also this, it was the 2010, so that was when like the tea party came in November. There's a lot of gridlock, couldn't get anything done, had to make a so compromise for unemployment benefits over Christmas and extend the Bush era tax cuts disillusioned with the whole national political process and right. said, well, locally you could do something you can't do things for millions of hundreds of millions of people but for three hundred thousand people you can move some things and that's when um then my cousin was murdered i went back home dealt with the feelings pain anger real survivor's guilt so i'm like well i'm literally in the white house let's see the power yeah. of this country right but i feel very powerless to help in a very immediate need back home Right. I um, mean, that's what we're seeing a spike in homicides in the city. Um, so longer story short, that's when I decided to run for mayor. I mean, city council um, midway through my senior year in college.
0: So is it OK? But so you're sitting in the White House. This happens. You decide I'm going to go back and run for city council. Did people say, no, you're crazy? That's not it's not what you should do? Or with people very excited? You are so young too, no, right? Like 21? Everyone, yeah. Okay. Everyone,
1: everyone thought it was crazy. Yeah. My mom was against it. People thought, okay, he just do it, lose, get a grill job. Yeah. Um, but there's some people who are still some of my biggest partners today who said, no, I think we can do it. I I, I see a vision. I, I, I see, I see what this could be.
0: How does one run for mayor when you're, or for city council when you're 21 years old and you, it, it, what do? You, how do you go about it? What or, or did you sort of intuitively just know who to put around you to help you become? Yeah. No, safe. it's
1: funny. If I had knew how difficult it was going to be and how hard it was going to be, I probably wouldn't have done it, right? But I was already I launched and iterate. Uh, benefit my... of youth. <laughs> but no, I, I I don't know. I I've always been if I'm good at anything, one of the things I'm good at is like building teams. Ever since I was a kid, yeah. I loved, even if I sucked at the sport, I loved being team captain. Like I could find, I could look at people's gifts, but okay, you'd be good at this, you'd be good at this, you'd be good at this. So mm-hmm. for the campaign, I just, my first meeting was with like 12 people. Um, it was like my mom and, and grandmother, um, a principal, my principal, my school board member, uh, my mom's hairdresser, because hairdressers know everyone.
0: Yeah, that's um, right
1: some community actors I had worked with, uh, a youth um, poet educator, just not people you would think are like, political. there was no like political consultants in the room. Yeah. but They knew so much about the city and they mm-hmm. made me feel like I could do it. They gave me so much confidence. Um, and like, yeah, we could do it. It's gonna be difficult, but we can do it. Um, and then uh, it was after that building a team. So finding a real campaign manager. Yeah. Um, mobilizing and organizing young people to help with door knocking and, and phone banking. Um, and then fundraising, which I don't, still don't like, but I've gotten pretty good. I'm pretty good at it now. I know how to raise money for yeah. things. Um, but it all came from this necessity that we'll have to have money to win. <laughs> so we have to plan these fundraisers. in.
0: And you did it. Now, so as you were serving on city council, you at some point decided, I'm going to run for mayor. What what was happening that you decided I, I need to run, I need to run the city.
1: Well, I was doing the mayor's job when I was on city council. So whenever mm-hmm. there was a contentious issue, whenever anyone wanted to get anything done, when they, I remember what a, a blatant example was we were trying to get a project downtown done, mm-hmm. affordable housing mixed use project. It would be the first one downtown in like decades. And the issue was between sort of our, our, our friends in the building trades and the developer. Yeah. Um, because the building trades thought it should trigger prevailing wage. And the developer was saying no. And technically the project did not trigger prevailing wage because we were just approving the project but there was no government money in the project which would trigger mm-hmm. wage. But the unions came out in force, like 50 deep to council to kill the project and say, no, this developer you not want to meet with us, no project. Developers stressed out, unions stressed out. We're on the dais, literally about to vote. Everyone's texting me from my colleagues, I'm like 24 years old, from my colleagues to the union, to the developers, like Tubbs you have to do something, Tubbs you have to do, what we're gonna do, what we're gonna do? do, and I'm like, what? And I so I I tabled the discussion, I called the meeting the next day, about the unions in, about the developers in, and we huh. reached an agreement. And there was stuff like that all the time. And I was like, well, I just figured I was still too young, it's like I never had a black mayor, I was hmm. just, I was, 25 years old, only been on council for three and a half years. There were people who have been on council for six, seven years who actually thought we'd been fine as mayors. Um, But then the police chief, a dear friend of mine, Chief Jones approached me and said, this is a not breaking protocol, but I would appreciate it if you would consider running for mayor. Wow. Um, How hard I worked. And I said, well, if the police chief is actually a black guy to run for mayor, this might be the winning coalition So, say, you know what, chief, I'll seriously consider it. And then the head of the business council, uh, of all the business interests approached me and said, I really want you to run for mayor. And I said, well, if I got the police chief Hmm. and the business council say, we want you to be our candidate for mayor. I was like, that's a crazy coalition. I mean, you would expect that from a more moderate or more conservative politician before a young black progressive, like, it's amazing. I was like, oh, like, there's something special here. We could really build a winning coalition. And then at the time to run for city council, you had to run citywide. Mm-hmm. That was the top vote getter of all the council members when we ran. So I knew I had a base throughout the city. Yeah. Um, so that's when I decided to run.
0: So once you entered office, you, you, you've done quite a bit in your four years as mayor, including creating um, a guaranteed income program. And, and I'd love for you to talk about that. It, you know, we're really interested in, in it, as I mentioned, because we're supporting a guaranteed income program for 2,000 people in the city of Amazing. Chelsea. Yeah, it, it, it's it's so interesting. And I'm excited to learn more, you know, because we're spending a lot of time studying it with um, Harvard Kennedy School. But talk a little bit about your guaranteed income program. And, and I'm imagining, based on what I've read, that it was a component of a larger strategy that you had, um, which has, seems to have impacted the city in a really positive way. And so could you maybe kind of help us understand that from, from a mayor's perspective, looking at the landscape of a fairly significantly sized city, what were all of kind of the pieces you were moving around? and And how did GI guaranteed income kind of play into it as, as one component of, of moving the city in a direction that you want to move it into.
1: Yes, yeah, so when I was a council member, my last year, I received a fellowship um, to think about community development and to build out what's become an organization I started called the Reinvented South Stockton Coalition, which is like a mm-hmm. collective impact table focused on my old council district. Yeah. And in that work, I just saw that all the different needs from housing to education to, as you, you see with the foundation, yeah and realized that government was necessary, but not sufficient. So it was important to have these community anchors who could hold space, who could do the work regardless of who's in office. But then I also realized that government did have a role to play. And I thought as mayor with the bully pulpit, particularly the way Stockton's structured, it's a city manager form of government, that the biggest sort of force multiplier as mayor may not be the most politically expedient, mm. It would actually maybe cost some, well, clearly cost some political capital, would be to have a vision beyond sort of the immediate, mm. to think about the next 50 years for the city. So myself and one of my best friends, Lang Lentau, who's a Harvard alum, um, runs the Reinvestment Foundation, what's served on school board for four years, we worked together to create this 2050 vision. In terms of what we want Stockton to look like in 2050, in terms of metrics and outcomes and comparison to cities. And a lot hmm. of it came from the collective impact work in terms of housing, education, jobs, safety, environment being pillars. And it has mayor, I just orient my time and my staff's time to really attack at attacking these issues at a policy or at a root level. Mm-hmm. And then I realized that with the, we, started, we started to start the scholarship program, as you mentioned, where every kid for the next decades guaranteed a scholarship. Um, started a bunch of gun violence reduction programs, but then I also realized that the crux of all of our issues was poverty—the grinding, endemic, structural, generational poverty right. in some of our neighborhoods. And I wanted to do sort of laser focus on improving these neighborhoods. Um, over a span of a couple of years and wasn't able to get that off the ground. but I also challenged my team to research the most radical way to deal with it. I said how can a city deal with poverty? And I said do mm-hmm. not give me anything I've read before in terms of continuum of supports and pipe I, I got that how children's own models wrote my masters a lot of my master's work was studying that model and trying to understand how to make that happen in Stockton. Mm-hmm. Um, but I said, give me a policy. And they came back with guaranteed income. They're like, just give people money. And, and it's funny because <laughs> I'm an evangelist, but I started off as a skeptic. I said, give people money. What did, and then I said, I remember reading about this and studying Dr. King, but the idea didn't go nowhere. So right. clearly, I mean, we haven't heard about it. So clearly something, there's something missing. They said, no, Mayor, in Kenya and Canada and here and here, they're doing these pilots in, in Mexico, Brazil, it's showing that Giving people money is actually an effective way. And I said, okay, how will we pay for it? So we talked about using cannabis revenues and other sources to pilot it. That's okay, that's interesting. We're going to table this to term two. Um, mm-hmm. but I don't, I, I, just didn't, I didn't see a path. And then the next week, I was in a conversation with the Economic Security Project. And one of the co-chairs, Natalie Foster, and she told me she was looking, they were looking for a city to pilot a basic income in. <laughs> And I told them I had a task force set up. of uh, studying this issue and we are very interested.
0: you sure, like, uh, I, I tabled them, but they're still there at the yeah.
1: table. So yeah, <laughs> I said, we've been actively working and we're excited about this. We'd love to explore.
0: You were you absolutely awesome. a manifester, by the way.
1: Like, <laughs> yeah, no. This is literally. kind of a thing. Yeah. No, literally. Um, and, and that's how the pilot happened in Stockton. Um, And then I came in as a skeptic. I came in saying, you know what? Poverty is unacceptable. I don't like the status quo. It's our responsibility to test ideas. Mm -hmm. But so my first frame was, no, we're testing this idea because we know what's happening is not working. And then as I saw the results and started talking to people and started listening and reading and learning, I I became a believer. And, And now I'm adamant that this has to be part of our 21st century social safety net, And that's why I'm so excited about the work you all are doing in Chelsea, the work being done with the other mayors reduction income mayors across this country, because it started with just one mayor, one 27 year old mayor in Stockton, California. Amazing. And now it's 30 mayors are across this country who are going to be piloting. And I'm so proud of that work.
0: Yeah, no, it's, it's absolutely incredible. And one of the things that, you know, Chris Hughes and you have worked a lot on mayors for a guaranteed income, and one of the things that Chris says that I think is so poignant is um, that this is really at this point about creating momentum and understanding because th- we have the facts. Like we 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 know it works, right? Like the, I'm curious what your biggest um, pushback was, where where you were most feeling most reluctant, and how that shifted. Uh, like what were you most surprised about in terms of the results?
1: Well, well I remember the first day we kicked off. That same day, then former VP, now current president-elect Joe Biden gave this speech about um, saying, well, no one, like not disparaging guaranteed income, but I remember he said dignity is attached to work, like the dignity of work, the dignity of work, the dignity of work. Right. And the first question I received as a 27-year-old was like, what do you have to say about Joe Biden's uh, about the dignity of work? And I remember saying, I'm 27 years old. Uh, so no disrespect <laughs> to, to to the former VP. I was like, do agree that people want to work, that people want to feel purposeful. Yeah. I just think part of the issue is that we attach dignity to work. Because there's a lot of people who do untraditional forms of labor. There's a lot of people, particularly women who do work that isn't compensated. There's a lot of people who have a disability and they can't work. Artists, students, etc. do they not have dignity? Are they less right. dignified? Like I don't, um, and that, But that has been a, a constant sort of thing to push back against, this idea of dignity being attached to work. And I think one thing that's been hard, harder to push back against or harder, excuse me, to surface up, is that yeah. when we were designing in Stockton, it was fascinating because I would talk to people um, and I would say, so that we're going to do this, get into income pilot, and they would all say how the money would help them, themselves. Yeah. But then they would say, I won't get it because they get everything, or or they're going to use it badly. And it's before we had selected anyone. Huh. So I was like, describe they. Yeah. Yeah, Who's they? in your head is, is they. And um, oftentimes the they, they wouldn't say a race, but they would describe sort of like a welfare queen type of trope, which is usually associated with black women or things of that sort. And I just found that that's thing. And I would say, yo, I said, universal basic <laughs> universal <laughs> you and me. Right. Like, what's this they thing? And I think that's also been very, very hard huh. to continue with. And I think the third thing is that, and I've only appreciated it more so this year, is that part of the pushback we get because we have these people have these strongly held ideas of how the world should work as if that's how the world does work so for example
0: Mm.
1: a lot of people believe that if you work you should be able to pay your bills
0: right
1: so they say people can't pay their bills because they're not working it's like no people are working work isn't paying like you like that's the it but I really have discovered just in a lot of conversations I've had with people is that we have these ideas because we're taught in terms of like American meritocracy, you work hard, you're rewarded. And I'm like, yes, we want to build to a society where those notions are true. Yeah, but They're just not true today. And that's the issue. And that's what we should be upset about. Not about giving folks an income floor. Right. Like that, that like, that's and right. just trying to get people. So I guess to encapsulate that, I think. Harvard has been trying to get people more upset at the problem than at possible solutions because so much of the anger is is targeted at the solution. And I'm like, well, where's that anger mm. to the problem? If we get it there, we can actually get to a place where we can do things. Um, to make it, things why, do you, why do you
0: think people have people who have the ability to support policies like rolling out guaranteed income, why do you think they have such a hard time? understanding the problem?
1: I think for, I think it's a lot of reasons, right? I think number one, um, there's a perverse incentive not to understand the problem, because I mean the status quo, people complain about it, but it has a lot of friends. So if you're in an elected office, mm. usually it's there's a difference between like a politician and a leader, and it's really hard. I, I tried to be both and I wasn't reelected, But but politicians usually re- reflect the current thinking in the current temperature of a room. leaders are folks who are pushing who are saying no we have to do more than what's in this room and you're you're going to piss people off you're trying to change the temperature you're not trying to reflect the temperature i think that's the issue so if the folks aren't pushing for it even if you see the problem if you're more wedded to being in your job to doing your job there is a perverse incentive to not really do too much not to really shake the boat not to really push i think the, the other part is that we live in such bifurcated environments that if you're in a decision maker or if, or anyone with relative privilege, it's very unlikely you encounter and actually have an equal relationship with someone who's economically struggling. That's right. Like if you went to Stanford or Harvard, like many of our policy makers, elected office, but also on the staff, foundation side, et cetera, unless that's your day-to-day job, you really don't have and understanding or even exposure to the day-to-day realities of folks. And then even if it is your day-to-day job, it's in a different power dynamic. So it's always you helping. So it's not kind of equal. And and I think that's part of it as well, because there's no way if we had a Congress, for example, filled with people who needed that $1,200 stimulus check to survive, we wouldn't have those, that, that, that wouldn't be part of the package, right? But we have a Congress full of millionaires who have these notions of how the world works and how the world should work. And there's no, and the folks who they talk to, the folks who attend their fundraisers, the folks that donate, aren't the folks who are, are, some are, but usually aren't the folks that are really, really struggling, could really benefit and are really engaged in the political system. So I I love that that's that's a lot of it. And I also think that for all the things that are great in terms of our, our values as a country, This rugged individualism is very destructive, particularly in times like these, because it presupposes that everyone has the same opportunity, everyone has the same access, and everyone has the same starting point. And I think it's just this notion of just rugged individualism at the expense of having at least some idea of what community means and some idea of of being a neighbor creates this like weird social Darwinism when folks are saying like, let's do herd immunity open everything up you decide if you want to go to the store you decide, but you have to go to work but everyone else decides if they want to go or not and may the chips fall where they land and that's just like
0: it's the, such privilege thinking thinking.
1: to this point and the thinking that necess- necessitates the work you all are doing and we're doing in terms of like highlighting and, and having an ex- example to point to
0: yeah but what
1: things can be and it's not scary we haven't changed our country our flag didn't lose a star. We still have all the stripes. We're still America. We're just America that's a bit stronger.
0: <laughs> right. Well, no, I think you're right. I mean, I almost wonder if there should just be a requirement for everyone who works in Congress to you know, do community service, but really do it. Like roll up your sleeves and spend time with people and get to know and be able to tell their stories. Just a
1: week. They should do like a right. week. Let's do that. Let's create like a congressional, like alternate spring break or immersion trip where they, have to spend, yeah. they can do it in D.C. Spend yeah. three days in Anacostia.
0: Yeah. I mean, it, it's really interesting, right? Because I remember I, I spent a lot of time with the medical community in um, Boston and it was, it's so interesting to me to talk to older doctors because we, we talk a lot about like doctor's notes and getting people to engage in their healthcare and that notes used to be stories. You know, when, when doctors used to go to medical school, they were taught how to look at a person and understand them. And then the notes, if you were reading the notes, if you were the next doctor to come along, you could tell who the patient was based on the story, because, because it was so obvious, like which one of those patients, you know, personified what was in those notes. And, and that doesn't happen anymore today. And so, you know, we're, we're kind of separate from our own health experience, but I think it's probably true of Congress as well, that we can't even explain or understand or empathize, you know, really empathize. And so I, I spend a lot of time beating my head against the wall when, you know, I try to explain it because people do. They just why can't people just roll up their sleeves and get it done? And I understand why those, you know, those kids can't get to school every day. And what's, you know, what's wrong with the family? And why and it, it it's so hard when you don't have the experience set to really be humble enough to know that someone else absolutely never started with anything that you've experienced and therefore you have to kind of evolve your opinions um and your solutions around something that you're you you are not comfortable with and i think it makes it very difficult
1: and and i say this because i literally came in as a like i mentioned a skeptic like yeah to the idea like, if it Let's see if it works. I want to see if it works. Yeah. It was in talking to people, even in the design phase and hearing from them. Because even, even though I grew up in poverty, I'm fairly comfortable now. I'm a mayor of a city. My, I, I, you know, I, my bills are paid every month. I'm, Yeah. So I underestimate how transformative, because I feel like, I was like, $500, that's not that much. Like, what can I actually yeah. do? It's a cool right. idea. Right. But no, I was in talking to people before we even gave out one check. And they, one woman, I'll never forget. And this is what got me really thinking, like, oh, people are smart. Like, you got to just trust them to make this decision. She yeah. said, $500 would really help me in the summer. I thought, that's weird. I said, so why would it help you in the summer? And she said, well, my kids come back home from school in the summer. Hmm. And I don't want to tell them not to come, even though it's very stressful for me because my grocery bills go up, my light bill goes up, and my AC bill goes up. But my pay stays the same. Yeah. So I want my kids to come home. I don't want them to feel bad. She says, mm. so that would just give me peace in the summer. And I was mm-hmm. like, I, think it's, I was like, yeah, wow, yeah, that makes so much sense. And there's the $500 no-
0: allows her to be a mother and to yeah. experience her family.
1: And, and there's no way I'm smart enough to think of that for 315,000 people. Like, right. and, and, and that was, it was it's the stories. And we extended it during COVID 19. Yes. Because of the stories, because folks were t- telling us, and I had no idea. I have never had to apply for unemployment insurance. So I thought it was automatic. I thought once you were unemployed, you automatically got a check because you paid in. Mm-hmm. I didn't know you have to apply. I didn't know you have to wait months sometimes. I didn't know mm-hmm. the problems with EDD. Until so my constituents told me, like, no, mayor, I need something. I have, I've been laid off. My bills are due tomorrow, and right. I can't even get to unemployment because everyone's calling unemployment at the same time. And I was like, right. oh my gosh, yeah. My or something simple like a lot of people don't have pay time off. So one gentleman, Tomas, told me that he used the 5 dollars the first month to interview, and when he said that, I said why would you pay money to interview? This is what people were saying was going to happen. Oh my gosh. And then he laughed and he said, no, I get paid hourly. I don't get time off that's paid. So for me to uh, interview for a job I'm qualified for that would pay more, would require me to take a risk of not being paid for a day. And we live paycheck to paycheck. I can't afford losing $200 on my check. But with the $500 I was able to interview and I got the job and I was like, just things like right. that, I think, particularly in COVID nineteen when folks are told to spend quarantine if you've been exposed for two weeks.
0: Yeah.
1: Half a month with no pay.
0: Yeah.
1: When half the is one paycheck, one, 500, one half of a pay one one half of a paycheck away from financial ruin. That it's causing us to be sick. And I think it's also the causes for all these spikes with, with COVID nineteen. It's that folks so are saying. Too. I have to work to eat, I have to work to pay my bills. Yes, thank you for the eviction moratorium, but at some point I'm gonna to have to pay that rent. Right. And the more I don't pay it, the bigger the bill is gonna be. And I'm not gonna have a job next year that's gonna pay me $6,000 more. My job might not even exist next year. Right. And all that to say, Jill, that's why I'm just through the moon about the need for a guaranteed income, but it's really rooted in deep empathy and shutting up and listening to my constituents and seeing like, oh wow, even something as small as $500 can make a big difference.
0: So, and I'm curious because you're a mayor, as you said, of a diverse city. And so you saw folks who were on SNAP, which is kind of the, you know, today's food stamps and on support, the WIC support for women, infants, and children, and who were um, receiving unemployment, insura- unemployment insurance and unemployment. Um, what do you think about these federal programs are they deeply effective are they bureaucratic to a degree that they're not as effective as they could be are they somewhere in the middle how do you think about those in, yeah, I, in combination with or instead of gi what, yeah. what's your thought
1: i think they are necessary but not sufficient i okay. mean research tells us that but for these programs we would have even more poverty so I, I tell them all the time, the existence of poverty, is it like these programs weren't even designed to end poverty. They were designed for hunger. They yeah. were designed for, and they are effective in doing that for the people they're able to serve. And my mom was actually on the WIC and on SNAP for the first five, six years of my life. And it was a lifeline. It gave us the, what yeah. was necessary for my development. But with that being said, we also know that there's more that has to be done. That There's still gaps and there's still holes. So there's a lot of contemporary discourse. I'm of the opinion that for me, it's hard to justify folks who today need $350 for groceries. We take that away, give them a thousand dollars and then give me a thousand dollars when I didn't even need the 350. And that's right. why I'm so adamant that it should be additive
0: yeah, okay. that,
1: that, that, as much as we can. And I mean, there might, there might have to be some sort of something, but I think the existing social safety net has to exist and we need to add into it because I, it just doesn't from an equity perspective it just doesn't if someone needed more than I needed before why should I take what they had to give us both the same it's going sort to of put me further ahead
0: no I don't mean that I mean would you just say you know the billions of dollars that we spend on snap let's just give it away let's just like let's let's fire everybody like all that overhead all those salaries you know all that negotiation with supermarkets etc <laughs> all that like labeling of special parts of, of the aisles and and let's just take all of that money and just and just increase the guaranteed income number yeah
1: no i i think I'll, i'm open to that but if we look at like our military budget for example yeah. and and take that same concept in terms yeah. of the damn space force and I, like i i'm very open for to in terms of how do we reallocate existing dollars i would just rather those dollars be part of our our budgets are already bloated versus budgets that seem like big numbers but advocates are saying we need more people one in eight americans are hungry we probably need more snap yeah. et cetera. Et cetera. Right. but for right. other parts of our budgets are bloated like i would argue defense spending i would definitely love to see like some reallocation of that to say hey our, our national security risk is poverty and the fact that our kids can't read and the fact that we won't have a competitive workforce Let's give folks money. I I would be. I'll wear a shirt. I would. I would organize. (laughs) I'm down for that for sure. I'll
0: wear a shirt if you make it for me. (laughs) (laughs) So, so what? What did the governor of California, Gavin Newsom, or um, Kamala? What what is Harris, who's now about to be our vice president? um, What What did they think about what you were doing when you know when as they were paying attention to how it was impacting residents of California?
1: Yeah, vp Alec like Harris actually wrote about the Stockton pilot in her book. and She talks about political capital and spending political capital and testing an idea and hypothesis and saying yeah. she's very interested in, and applauds sort of vision and bravery. And we see some of the learnings in terms of how we did in Stockton, reflecting reflect in a couple of bills she wrote. Um, the first, the LIFT Act, which would reverse the Trump tax cut to give every American making 100 care less $500 a month.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, and also her... Bill, she co-sponsored with Senator Markey and Senator Sanders around two thousand dollars a month during the pandemic. Right. Um, Governor Newsom has been he, hes a nerd, um, so he's been very interested. Um, yeah. he, he definitely appreciates. He's—he said he—he—he's much more like I want to see the results. <laughs> but, yeah. but but I think given COVID nineteen, he's also um, realizes that there's more that has to be done, and we have to really think about sort of how do we particularly in California, where we have such a wide gap between folks right. um, that's only been exacerbated because of COVID-19, like what can we do? So he's been um, interested in checking in and, and thinking about sort of what's the way to get economic mobility and, and Stockton has been very positive um, about the pilot and looking forward to the results.
0: Yeah. That's good. That's good. So can we switch gears for just a second? So so you you recently lost your rebid for mayor to Republican Michael Lincoln and Kevin Lincoln. Kevin Lincoln, sorry. Sorry. Not your first name. But so from what from what I've read the local there's a local social social media player who had kind of a huge negative impact on your campaign. Is that is that the case and if that's the case you know what do you, what do you think about everything that's happening with the federal government and social media at large, and just kind of the dissolution of media, you know, yeah,
1: No, no I, and uh, real facts. Yeah. fate. Um, so disinformation is real. And yeah. I, if I could do anything differently, I would have taken it more serious. But what we know from their own words, from investigative journalism, from New York Times, Washington Post, Medium, that there was a four-year coordinated disinformation campaign, uh, just using social media, Facebook, Instagram, and using the algorithm to target people, all the while we're busy doing work and and talking on traditional media outlets and doing interviews and doing the stuff you're supposed to do, talking to the newspaper, et cetera. Um, But Stockton's a news desert. So while we're doing that, this this disinformation page um became a hub for some people to get their news and what they would do and it wasn't for four months and that's why i keep telling people it was not just about the camp it was a full year. right so right. every single day from the time i became mayor to, the, to today three times a day there was an article that said three things and they were always untrue
0: yeah because it went all the way back to the real estate so
1: they,
0: it went all the way back to the real estate eventually. yeah
1: it was just it, yeah it it, it 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 was um Number one, that Mayor Tubbs is a thief. Mayor Tubbs is stealing money from the city. Yeah. So every day they would make up a story that said that Mayor Tubbs is stealing from the city. Right. And number two, Mayor Tubbs is lazy. Mayor Tubbs doesn't work. Every day a story about that. Um. And number three, Mayor Tubbs is corrupt. He's a crook. He's under investigation. And all those things are also like tropes often used against Black people in terms of being criminal, in terms of being lazy,
0: yeah. in terms of stealing. Yeah. And they did
1: it every single day for four years, targeting people, having conversations with people, evoking yeah. their emotions. And I'm just being mayor, <laughs> right. I'm doing mayor stuff. I'm not I'm, I'm on Facebook, so I have no idea it's getting a following. And then in a city of 300,000 people, yes, there's fires. And, and yes, there's homeless people, and people who are homeless, excuse me, we're working to address that. But right. every day they would post a picture of a homeless individual. Or an individual who's homeless and say this is due to mayor Tubbs every day for four years and same right. things with like fires every day for four years and they would lie and say mayor Tubbs received 50 million they would just make up numbers he received 50 million dollars to deal with homelessness where's the money and just repeat it over and over and over and over again and i didn't realize it was a problem till we started campaigning and people would parrot back these yeah i'm like y'all know you hear that's that. not true right like yeah like if i'm stealing so much money why are so many people giving me money right I've never gave the city money before like it, but and i since the election i've been doing a lot of information about disinformation and part yeah. of it is it's emotional it's not yeah. factual so you can't encounter it with facts you can't counter it with, hey this is what i did you have to counter it with another feeling because the way our brains work so um I think the next kind of guaranteed income thing for me will be around disinformation and make sure we have the tools and also just the importance of local press. Like this only exists because as the social media company was starting, our local newspaper was dwindling. The month that they started, our newspaper laid off a third of their staff. Now our newspaper is the only newspaper has five or six journalists for a city of 300,000 people. Right. Um, And they aren't able to do as many local news They maybe do one or two local stories. Um, and they're quick because they're on social media. They don't have to be fact-checked. They don't have to be true. It's about fast. So They'll post something really quick, like blah, blah, blah. And sometimes they're right when there's a car accident. But even when they're wrong, there's no accountability. And, right. and it, it's really dangerous for a democracy. So I think we have to have a conversation about how do we publicly fund local news. Yeah. And we also have to have a conversation about Facebook and right. sort of the, the danger it poses to democracy when it's unchecked, unfettered. And how there is a need for authority, there's a need for a credibility. That that there has to be some way of ascertaining what's fact and what's fiction, and that we're right. not entitled to make up our own facts based off our feelings.
0: Well, yeah, and and it's, it, they just feed an addiction, right? Those yeah. who are really good at the social media, it's 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 like being on. Cocaine or you know crack that you just go out and you look for the information that's going to feed your feelings right and feed your fears and feed you know feed the way that you want to feel emotionally whether it's true or not.
1: It's terrible.
0: Yeah, it's crazy. You know, so quite honestly, I, I'm not sure what would be more important as we head into 2021 and into a recovery after COVID-19. Your you know, being a leader in a movement towards guaranteed income, or you being a leader in um, helping shift. Well, I think once t- one just helping promote understanding of what actually is happening by um, leaving the media and especially social media unchecked. Um, and I, maybe you have a point of view on that. What What are What are you thinking about? As, and and I'm and I'm sure I'm sure the universe has a a role to play, right, in why you are now moving on from from being mayor of Stockton. And so what what are you thinking about doing next? Yeah,
1: no, I I think I'll have a lot more time, or (laughs) I guess I'm saying that.
0: Maybe for a hot minute. I don't know about that. Yeah, I know, but (laughs) i I, I
1: have a lot more flexibility. I won't be wedded to a place. I won't be wedded to potholes. I won't be wedded to parks and cleanup and tree maintenance and tree stumps. And yeah. crosswalks, like I just won't be wedded to having to deal with and think about that, which creates more space to think about sort of how do you get guaranteed income as a policy? So I'm committed to that. I want to help um, the governor or even the president think about economic mobility, like how do we create an economy and an opportunity for people? How do we yeah. keep testing ideas and scale up the things that work? And then I'm also really serious about this disinformation thing because- yeah. I mean, in terms of local elected officials go, I can't think of anyone who's been as blessed as I've been blessed with sort of positive press, a whole movie, yeah, um, fundraising, like resources. And still, yeah. that wasn't enough, right? So I worry about folks who have less of that, yeah. who are progressive or forward thinking or who are just challenging or who look different in terms of leadership. And that we have to, and, and local news outlets. So I'm definitely going to find a way to play a part in whatever the conversation is around disinformation about the need for publicly funded local news. Um, that's yeah, that's definitely up there with guaranteed income as, as two of the policy areas I'm, I'm really interested in.
0: I think, I think it's so fantastic. Well, I want you to know that we are excited to collaborate with you on both that you know, as you know, we're doing a little show on school committee meetings, um, which is local and, you know, really meant to share with a much broader audience than the hundreds of people that show up for it. What is really happening behind the scenes in governance in an urban district that is not doing optimal service to um, students and, you um, and, and also in, in our work around guaranteed income, because we do think it's an important part of the solution. But there's a lot, like you said, a lot of storytelling to do there so that we can bring people along who are policymakers to a point where they can truly understand and feel what that change could be.
1: Oh, absolutely. I'm looking forward to working with you all, particularly to amplify the things that are happening in Chelsea, yeah, in conversation, what's happening around the nation, and really, Putting our wits together to really push for a policy, and then also think about this disinformation thing. Because I I, I, like when we talked offline about how wow, I wish we had a local podcast. I I really do. Yeah. Because there's like our like city council is off the hook, but our school board is even worse Um, in terms of even yesterday that they like breaking all type of rule, like breaking laws, like sunshine laws. It's it's a mess. And yeah. But folks need someone that can help translate and not tell people and give people just what's happening yeah a commentary in a way that people can hear it so really inspired by that podcast and and (laughs) definitely will be following up to find a way if there's ways for us to work together around disinformation writ large
0: well it's so it's so great to know you it's so interesting to hear your story um it just feels like you oh man you're going to impact this country in so many ways that you know, I can't imagine, but I, I know that you will. And um, I want to really thank you for spending time with us today and um, helping us learn more about what happened in Stockton and, and what you think about what could happen more across America.
1: No, no, thank you so much for having me for what you're doing. I'm looking forward to just keeping you in touch.
0: Yeah. Thank you, Mayor. Thank you for listening to my conversation with Mayor Michael Tubbs. It's interesting to think about how guaranteed income might be an effective card to be played during America's recovery from the COVID-19 crisis and beyond. It'll be interesting to watch the work of mayors across the country on this topic and to follow the federal conversation as well. I hope that you enjoyed today's podcast. And if you did, please rate, review, like, and share it with your friends. Have a great day.